0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Book, and is number one of a series that is dealing with the great subject of salvation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us the 45th chapter of the Prophecy of Isaiah. There are one or two features in this Isaiah 45 that I think would be wise if we touched upon before we begin the examination more particularly of the references to salvation in the scriptures. You will notice it starts with a reference to Cyrus and he is mentioned earlier in the closing verses of the preceding chapter. And this is characteristic of the prophecy of Isaiah because you remember that after you get to the end of chapter 35, prophecy breaks off and history is picked up and tells you what God did to Sennacherib. And if you look at the book of Daniel, you'll find it's constructed on these lines. The first half is all history, and the second half is all prophecy. Don't you see what God is doing? He said, anybody can tell you what is going to happen in two or three thousand years' time. But he said, I'm drawing your attention to what I've done now. And just as I could send Sennacherib back the way he came, when the last anti-Christian oppressor comes, I'll do the same with him. And so Cyrus is a foreshadowing, in his small way, of the great deliverer that has yet to come. As far as we know, the mother of Cyrus was a Jewess, Esther, and she had a great influence on that son of hers, And it was Cyrus who made the proclamation giving free access back again to Jerusalem and all the necessities to rebuild it, and that's what's referred to here. Then it swings over to a greater savior, a greater deliverer, a greater restorer. And there are one or two features here that need to be very carefully treated. Look at verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And I remember having a very uncomfortable journey in a car, miles and miles, we couldn't get out. And I was very obtuse. Oh, I was as dense as could be. Because this particular person believed universal reconciliation. And he said there was a passage in Scripture which says, God created evil. He said, "It says God created good and God created evil." I said, "There's no such place." Well, he says there is. I said, "There isn't." I never enlightened until we got to the end. I said, "You see, you've betrayed your bias. The Scripture doesn't say God created good and created evil. That's what you want him to. That's what you want for your doctrine." He said, "I create peace and I create evil. What's the difference?" Well, you don't know what the evil is unless you know it's opposite. Because this word evil can be the punishment for sin or calamity. Not God creating wickedness, but punishing it. I've got a stock illustration. If I said to you, you're aware of it now, but if I said to you and you are unprepared, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the word light occurs. What's the opposite of light? Well, nearly everybody says darkness. I said, oh no. By the light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. You don't know what I'm referring to. And if you'd have seen that one, I said, Oh no. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, don't you see? I don't know what the word light means, whether it means an illumination or whether it means something not very heavy, till I know its opposite. So when God says If there be evil in the city, I the Lord have done it. Well those people knew what that meant. That was a judgment on their sin. And so we have here, I create peace, or it's opposite. I, the Lord, do all these things. And then not only claiming that, he claims to be the creator. He says in verse 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. This is creator, isn't it? In the fullest possible sense. And then, more than once, we had as a, as a refrain, punctuating this chapter, the words, none else. None else. We get it, um, verse 17, or the the end of verse 14, surely God is in thee, and there is none else. None else. Or again it says, um, further down to the end we were reading, a just God. And a Saviour, there is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for well, I am God, and there is none else. A Saviour, who is a creator, and there is none else. The words cannot be more explicit. And then, look at the words which we, with which the chapter practically finishes. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return that unto me. Now there's no possible doubt as to who the me refers to. It refers to this Saviour, beside whom there is none else, that unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. And those words are quoted by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, concerning him whose name is Jesus that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So you see, it's utterly impossible for us to divorce the word salvation from the Saviour. And we wouldn't have it otherwise, would we? Those two march together. But what a Saviour! When we begin to realise, you've only got to read, say, John the first chapter or Hebrews the first chapter, thy hands, it says, Thou Lord in the beginning, hath laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And this one was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour. So that although we may say in the first case, a group of Christians who have been Christians for many years might say, well, we have believed Christ, and we have a... Very good idea of salvation. Well, blessed be God if you have friends. But I'm positive of this. The more we know that Saviour, and the more we understand that salvation, we will be saying to somebody and tell us it over and over again. For so we never will exhaust its fullness or its sweetness until travelling days are done. I hope too that those of you who are listening to this take recording. If you have opportunity either in Bible class or in gospel work, we'll find that some of the things that we bring forward will be of use to you as well as a comfort to those of us who may be here just at this simple meeting. Now, the word salvation meets us almost at every turn in the New Testament. The very first chapter, the name given to the Son of God. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save. And when Peter spoke of Jesus of Nazareth, notice the title of his belittlement, Can Any Good Thing Come Out of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, there's no other saviour beside him. Neither is there salvation in any other. And he knew this chapter. So you see, we're facing a tremendous fact that what we call the simple gospel, the simple gospel, immediately involves us in that which we cannot explain, but we can only believe. That the one who is our creator, and the one who could condemn us because he's our judge, is the one who stooped to take upon himself our nature, and to die the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. That is salvation. I thought of a a hymn that used to be sung when I first began to be a Christian in a gospel witness it came to me I dare say you know it All Saviour I have naught to plead on earth below or heaven above but just my own exceeding need and thy exceeding love that's all neither in earth or heaven is there any other way? My need is exceeding. And it took all the grace and the power and the wisdom of God to lift me out of the horrible pit and the miry plain and put a new song into my mouth as it was with you. We might say that our commodity is salvation. If we never preached a gospel to an unsaved person all the days of our life, the moment we open the book, the moment we let it speak, the moment we take out any place with regard to making truth known, we are dealing with this one commodity. What does it matter, friends, whether we rightly divide the word of truth, whether we're expert with regard to the different dispensations, whether we know the difference between this aspect of the second coming or that, and we're unsaved. It can't be any use at all. In fact, it's tragic, isn't it? So here we are at the beginning of things. Neither is there salvation in any other, said Peter. Paul, in the same Acts of the Apostles, he spoke in the same strain that the words he spoke were the words of salvation, and they pointed to a Saviour. I suppose you know, and uh, there's quite a list of words in um, the word of truth of our brother Oscar Baker that has drawn your attention to the Old Testament word Yeshua, which is the word translated Saviour and Salvation, which is pronounced Jesus by us. So that over and over again in the Old Testament they were actually saying the name of the one who was yet to come as a Saviour. And old Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel, went into the temple at the moment that Joseph and Mary brought brought the infant Christ and he said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And he was looking at a baby. But he was right. He was looking at the only possible way in which salvation could become ours. By someone who was not involved in Adam someone who was nevertheless man, someone who could take our place, voluntarily be reckoned among the transgressors. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. We're a blessed people if we can put ourselves in the same chapter as the blind man in John. And his eyes were opened. And that one looking at him said, dost thou believe on the Son of God? He said, who is he, Lord? He said, it is he that speaks to you. You're looking at him. And the climax of our hopes is that we shall see him. The first epistle of John says, we know not what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. That's seeing him as a transforming effect. We shall see him as he is. Well, now let's get down a little bit to more definite details. I've mentioned that the name Yeshua was well known in the Old Testament. And it's merely the Greek pronunciation that we have uh, coming over into English. But it means the salvation of God. Now, salvation implies, first of all, necessarily a saviour. And we've looked at that very wonderful chapter in Isaiah 45. We don't pretend to know it, understand it completely. But it's a challenging chapter. We cannot possibly read Isaiah 45 and join the ranks of those whose saviour is merely the carpenter's son. That's all. He was the carpenter's son in a legal sense. And he did work at a bench. Oh yes. But he was once rich and for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. And here he is set forth as creator, and redeemer, and saviour. But it not only implies a person, it implies at least two characteristics. If you need to be saved, well obviously you're lost. A person who isn't lost, is not asking direction, is not seeking help. And so the scripture continually uses the figure of being lost. The one that comes to our mind immediately is the lost sheep. The whole of the people of Israel were looked upon as sheep that were lost, and our Saviour said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he gave that parable a threefold picture a woman losing that which was precious to her as a married woman those coins that they kept, they didn't spend them, she'd lost them and the anxiety to find them and the rejoicing when they were never found and then the sheep that's lost and then the son that was lost and all but a picture of the Father. One of the things for which Christ came was not merely to redeem us, but John's gospel said he came to declare the Father. And one had been with him for some time, asked about it, and he said, Have I been so long time with you? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and this is life eternal, but there may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And so we have the lost son and when he came back he was rehearsing in his mind what he would say make me one of thy hired servants. I dare say you know the two words that have been lifted out of that parable they're quite good to remember. It starts with the son saying give me and it ends with the son saying make me. We came back and he didn't say, Give me any more. Make me as one of thy hired servants. But it was the father that cut him short. It was the father that ran, not the prodigal son. As the prodigal son got nearer home, his steps grew slower, he was ashamed, and his father saw him afar off, and he didn't sit there in his dignity and say well, he went out and he'd come back and ask permission. No, that's not that's not the father. That's not the way he found you. That's not the way you found me. This is salvation in all these various phases. And not only is salvation implying something that is lost, but it implies by the way it is used, it implies that you are in bondage and you need deliverance. And of course the great the great outstanding picture of bondage is the people of Israel in Egypt. And the very title was given in the scriptures to Egypt. It's called the House of Bondage. It might have been called many other things. It might have been called the center of civilization of the known world in that time. With its magnificent temples and its wonderful buildings and its advance in many items of science which we realize they were feeling after, none of those are mentioned. It's the House of Bondage. And the deliverance was by the shedding of blood Christ, our Passover, hath been sacrificed for us. Takes us right back to that Passover and tells us that there's no other way of salvation. This is basic and essential. And so we have a Saviour that's coming presently who shall deliver us from the bondage of corruption. We've been delivered from the bondage of legalism and the bondage of sin. But the bondage of corruption is to be dealt with and we shall be transfigured into the likeness of the body of his glory. So you see, salvation is a widespread thing. We were as sheep going astray, but we have returned, said Peter, to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. I think it would be wise if we turned to the epistle of Titus, To see the way in which, without any explanation or any diffidence, he alternates the word God our Saviour with Jesus Christ our Saviour. Titus. Three chapters with six references to a Saviour. Let's look at them. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested His word through the preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. It's explicit, plain, straight statement. But the very next verse says. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The title repeated. Then in chapter 2, he brings them together again. Verse 9. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again not for perloiding, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Then he goes on, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly, in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, that's the from aspect, and purify unto himself, that's the positive aspect, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And then in chapter 3, but after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Well there it is. That short epistle has six references to a Saviour. Three he says God our Saviour. Three he says Jesus Christ our Saviour. At least we can see this whatever else may be difficult to explain that the language which we find in Genesis 22 can be lifted out and said here. They went, both of them, together. You remember, Abraham's faith was tested. There are some folks who say that James contradicts Paul. Well, Paul's text is Genesis 15, and James' text is Genesis 22. And James says, you see how his faith perfected, how his works perfected his faith, he knows what he's talking about, James. He says, I'm not, I'm not talking about initial salvation. I'm talking about the fact that when once you're saved, your work can perfect your faith. And I'm giving you the example of Abraham, who was tested to the utmost. God didn't spare him for the time He said, Abraham, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, you see, And Isaac asked the question of his father, what's it all about? And then it says they went, both of them, together. And Paul uses exactly the same word that is used in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22 the angel stopped Abraham and said, Now I know thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld, that word, withheld thine only son from me but it's not translated with hell, but we have the same word in Romans, the 8th chapter, he spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. The same word that is used in the Greek version of Genesis twenty-two. So whatever the other problem that they have with regard to the interchange of the fact that God creator and God is savior and one is spoken of as God and one is spoken of Jesus as Nazareth or whatnot, they went both of them together. Never must we countenance the idea of a tender-hearted Jesus stepping in between a poor sinner and an angry God. It's the angry God, so-called, that sent his Son. It's God who loved the world and gave his beloved Son. They went, both of them, together. Well, in many other places we can bring this together. The, the, The Father sent the Son to be the saviour of the world. And then we find it was absolutely necessary that he should become flesh. We get one or two passages together. Shall we just acquaint ourselves? We know them all so well, I know. But John, the first chapter, it takes us back to the beginning He who was the Word, all things were made by him. But had he remained in that capacity and position, we should still be unsaved. And so it says in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And most of us know that word dwelt is the word to tabernacle. A temporary tent dwelling, that's all. Just a little while. And then he goes on to say, he, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a, a peculiar construction here, and nearly every translation, uh, suggests that there's a little diffidence. It purposely put it like this, and we beheld his glory, that sort of glory that you would associate, you, you would associate with anyone who was the only begotten of such a father. That's the way it's put. That's the sort of glory they beheld. Not the dazzling glory of the yet future, But the glory that would attach to anyone who had a father like that. And so we are told in verse 18 that that was one of the things that he came to do. No man has seen God at any time. All the He often is in the Old Testament where they saw the God of Israel or spoke face to face. It's all included here. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him or given him an outline or an exegesis. And so we have the fact that he became flesh. And it is the Son of God all the way through that is the One that bears the burden of salvation. After this series is over, this short series on salvation, I think we should have to supplement it by a series that deals particularly and all the time with the one who is called the Son. But that doesn't prevent us from looking at one or two passages that bear upon this person. So we'll go back again to Isaiah. And you know where I'm going to turn, I guess. Chapter 7 and chapter 9. In this chapter 7, these children have been given to Isaiah as for signs and wonders and types and shadows. It's all complicated, this this prophetic passage, with Israel's past history. And... um, Ahaz was tangled up and they said to him in verse 11 ask be a sign of the Lord thy God ask it either in the depth or in the height above and then Ahaz was very very modest oh how modest he was he said I will not ask neither will I tempt the Lord but you've only got to know the history behind it he was already up to his neck in a confederation with heathen that he wouldn't dare ask God to give him a sign And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you, to weary men, that will ye weary my God also? All right, Ahaz has refused. Therefore the Lord himself shall give thee a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that took place in Ahaz's own day. And so the word virgin here is the word that can be a virgin, but can also be a maiden, a young woman. Someone that I knew. But when we come to the New Testament, the word parthenos means a virgin in the strictest, fullest sense. Otherwise, you see, you've got the virgin birth in Isaiah already taking place before the one exception which belongs to the New Testament. But his name is Emmanuel. God with us. And that is repeated in Matthew 1 toward the close of the chapter. Well then we come to the other passage in Isaiah 9. Again this is connected with some of the historic facts that are going on. Very difficult to translate or to interpret verse 5 but this one stands out verse 6. For unto us a child is born there's no mere manifestation here. It's a birth. A child is born. And unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's a mistake to translate the passage the Everlasting Father The Lord Jesus Christ was not the everlasting Father. But the word Father is used in the Old Testament. Just the same as the word Son is used in the Old Testament. To indicate a certain character. I don't, I wouldn't like to say that the... I'm not going to mention the names because this is going up in tape recording. But I wouldn't like to say that the lady who played the organ just now is a descendant of Cain, would you? And yet it says one of the descendants of Cain is the father of all those who handle the harp and the organ. You see? And if you lived in the Middle East and you got the measles, you wouldn't call it the measles, you'd got the father of red ones. See? So this is the father of the ages. And that was Christ he was, by whom all the ages were constituted. By him all things are held together. All the whole purpose gathered up in his hand brought to a place, Christ is. So here's this emphasis in these scriptures of the person to whom we owe our salvation. Will you turn once more to Hebrews chapter 2? In chapter 1, this son is addressed as God. Verse 8, But under the Son, he says, thy throne, O God. This self say one is addressed as Lord, and now Lord in the beginning has laid the foundations of the earth. But in chapter 2, without the slightest hesitation, or thinking of anything strange, this is what you read. You see, It says in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham and so on. And so we read earlier that he was made a little lower than the angels, and in chapter one is given a more excellent name than the angels, but this has to do with himself as the mediator and the King's man redeemer. And having said the word King's man redeemer, it takes us back, as we must go back, to that classic passage in the book of Job. The book of Job. Now, of course, some dear friends will say, "Yes, we know what we're in for now. This great emphasis upon the King's man redeemer and what not." But all friends, what a wonder to think we can turn to it and see it so clearly. Set out. I don't advocate the use of Moffat's version as a you a rule, but he's very provocative and he did know the use of language. He's an unsafe guide with regard to certain things. But if you read this chapter in Job, the nineteenth chapter in Moffat's version, you get a very clear idea of what a kinsman redeemer stood for because I've just copied out here the 7th verse. Now the 19th chapter and the 7th verse reads, Behold I cry out of wrong but I am not heard. I cry aloud but there's no judgment. You don't jump out of your seats when I read that did you friends? No. But this is how Moffat renders it. I cry out murder! And he's put it in, in inverted commas. And there's no reply. I call for help! And they give me no justice. Verse 13, my clansmen have abandoned me. Verse 13, my brethren, my clansmen are far off. All this is leading up to the fact that this man was crying out for the interposition of a kinsman redeemer. He says, I cry murder. And when I cry that, my next of kin should have come to my rescue. The moment Abraham heard that his nephew Lot had been taken prisoner, He didn't say, well, I've only got a handful. He went out with a handful to meet an army. And he brought Lot back again. Under the hand of God. And then Job turns away from all these that might have come to his rescue. And he said, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now, here's the blessed thought. We have to be careful when we're reading the scriptures that we don't assume that because we have, say, a word on this page, it must be the same word on that page because it's so translated. Because sometimes the translators have taken liberties or they haven't been able to help themselves. But here's one thing you can take for granted. That every occurrence of the word Redeemer, without exception, you know, there are some silly people who, very wise, they say the exception proves the rule, and they think they said something wise. No, the exception proves the rule's wrong, that's what you ought to understand. You see, you try that on with regard to money matters and see whether it proves the rule. It wouldn't do, would it? The exception always proves that the rule you're working to is wrong, that we're not bothering about the wise proverb. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and I was going to say this, that every occurrence of the word redeemer in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, every occurrence, without exception, is always your next of kin. It's not got the word redemption in it. It means a husband's brother. It means your next of kin. Then it came to mean a kinsman redeemer, because the next of kin had that obligation. And you get the precious story in the book of Ruth telling you about Boaz, the kinsman-redeemer, how the uh, trouble arose because the woman was left a widow and she'd gone back with her mother, mother-in-law to the Bethlehem again and there the little love match took place. And the thanksgiving was he has not left sort off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And yet the dead were all buried in the land of Moab. Ah, but it was because he was now acting as kin's man and the little child that was going to be born of that marriage would be reckoned to the man that was dead. That's the next of kin. So he says, I know that my kin's man redeemer liveth. And that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's the kin's man. That's the hope that Job had reached at last. And that's the basis of all our hopes. And so we have introduced this evening this great question, this basic question, salvation. When you come to think of the age in which we live, it's a matter of common knowledge that they're going to bore holes in the earth miles down. They're going to save a good number of miles by going through the bottom of the ocean instead of being on dry land. Isn't that good? A save about 20 miles, I think, pouring down, so that they can find out what the under layer of the earth is like, you see. And then, of course, they're, they're planning, not merely to visit the moon, but to do all sorts of things beyond to the planet. And yet there's one question, of all questions, that anybody in their senses should ask when they see the complexity of wickedness and evil and frailty of our own natures. What must I do to be saved? Surely that's the burning question. It's a good idea to bore holes in the earth and try to get on the moon perhaps, but surely the question of our salvation and the salvation of others is the question of all questions. And it's a question that none can answer except the God against whom we've offended. And He's filled a book, not with things to do with Himself only, but things to do with himself as the God against whom we have offended and the way in which he has torn his heartstrings and given his best to bring the poor, lost, wandering sheep back to himself. I'm going to quote that little hymn again and end as we began. I don't know whether I can do it from memory. i have better look at my notes. Oh, Saviour. I have naught to plead on earth below, or heaven above, but just my own exceeding need, and I exceeding love.